Welcome to Focused on Forward. The purpose of this podcast is to focus on recovery from life situations, be it a disease, chronic or acute, perhaps the loss of someone so dear to you in death, or a change of life patterns that has affected you so profoundly that you have no choice but to find your new normal and become focused on moving forward. Each episode is designed to show the positivity that people bring to each and every one of their stories, the successes they've had, ways that they have become so definitively focused on moving forward. We look forward to sharing their stories, and we hope that they inspire you just as much as they have inspired us. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome to Focused on Forward. I have the absolute pleasure of sitting down with Susan O'Million today. We're going to talk about uh, what it means to be a thriver in the face of uh, physical violence against women, what it means to be a, the thriver in this, the sexual discrimination and rape and other things that, that, A, should never ever happen to a human being. But if they do, unfortunately, how do the victims of those things move past? Well, Susan O'Million is an attorney, she's an author, she's a motivational speaker, uh, and a nationally recognized expert who's worked to end violence against women for over the last 40 years. In the 1970s, she founded a rape crisis center, and in the 1980s, uh, she represented battered women in divorce proceedings. And she's also litigated uh, several sex discrimination cases, including helping to articulate the legal concept that made sexual harassment illegal in the 1990s. She is certainly a founder in this area and she is a trailblazer in this area and so I'm very excited to be able to talk with Susan today and get to know what got her into this work and how does she continue to move forward in the midst of, of things that frankly for me uh, to you know just to see this on the on a day-to-day -day basis could be disheartening uh, to say the least and we'll even talk about how uh, the unfortunate loss of her niece affected her work as well. So, Susan, thank you for being on the show today. Thank you for joining Focused on Forward. Well, thanks for inviting me. I really love the theme of your podcast, so I'm, I'm here. Excellent. Well, Susan, what I'd like to do is I'd like to turn the microphone over to you, and I'd like for you to, to include me and our audience into why you got started in this work and back in the 70s and, and what led you to the point of where we're at now. Well, that's a really good question. It sounds like the the, uh, the first question of writing prompt from uh, to write a memoir. Um, I um, I don't know exactly how to describe it. Um, I grew up in a very blue collar. I grew up in Detroit, a uh, blue collar auto um, um, manufacturing um, world, and um, my parents were not highly educated. My father had just barely got through high school before the war, or World War II. Um, but I got this idea very young that I wanted to be a lawyer, or at least I got interested in what lawyers do, and I think the persuasive part of it, um, reading uh, books in the library that were about um, uh, um, law lawyers going to court and litigating and, and doing the right thing. So 
Um, it, this isn't, I grew up in, I was born in the 50s, I grew up in the 60s and 70s, so women were not in the courtroom. <laughs> uh, I didn't know any women lawyers, I, I had no concept of it, but slowly through, um, I think mostly through college when women's rights started to, I got interested in women's rights and, and sort of the, the early feminist um, stuff, and um, I had never had an experience as a sexual assault victim. I'd never been in a relationship. My parents were not in that kind of relationship. Okay. So I was really kind of divorced from it personally, but I got more and more interested. So I went to law school in the early 70s, or actually mid-70s, uh, when Ruth Bader Ginsburg was actually litigating um, sex discrimination cases. So I was reading her her cases in, in my law school classes. And uh, I think while I was in law school, I got interested in a sexual assault program that wasn't available in the part of Detroit that I was living. And I, and I, we started it as volunteers. We started doing victim advocacy in the courtroom. I had never met women who had been through that experience. And then when I got out of law school, I really wanted to, um, to work in this area. Uh, my my 50-page paper in law school that it came out was on sexual harassment, which was a very new concept at the time. And I put together a paper that my law school professor gave me an A on because he didn't know anything about it, and he learned a lot. <laughs> so um, slowly progressing, I started working, as you mentioned, in legal aid. I represented women who were going through uh, divorces who were battered. And um, Michigan just passed the restraining order law, so we were going into court for the first time and asking the courts to sign papers that they weren't really used to doing. Uh, restraining orders were very new in the, in the early 19, late 70s, early 1980s. Um, so all this work, I, I started meeting women, started learning their experiences, started learning about how the, the law wasn't representing them. And eventually, I wanted to do a broader kind of women's rights work. So I came to Connecticut from Michigan, and I work for a women's public interest law firm doing a lot of sexual harassment work, a lot of introducing and doing trainings in, for employers around this. And also, I got involved in legislation, writing laws that would um, deal with uh, rape victims in the courtroom, um, confidential communications for, sec for uh, battered women's uh, shelter counselors, and also just generally trying to work on issues that gave people more rights and more equality. Um, I then went to work for state government for a while here in Connecticut, and I did some work on child welfare. So you can see this whole kind of exp experience I've had in my life was sort of helping others, but never really seeing it touching me personally or anybody in my family. And so in 1997, when I left state government and I was sort of out there trying to figure out my next step in life, uh, two years later, in October of 1999, um, my niece Maggie, who was a, a sophomore in college at a very good school, Kalamazoo College in Michigan, uh, was shot and killed by her ex-boyfriend who killed himself. And suddenly, although I knew that I had worked with women for years and years who had from every background, every ethnic background, every socioeconomic background, there was no woman who was, or no family that was exempt from this experience or these experiences. Um, but somehow I thought my family was the other. And so part of me was 
I guess the word is shocked this happened, mostly because my niece is a very bright young woman. She knew about abuse, but I think what happened was that he um, never touched her physically before he shot and killed her, and that the other warning signs were there of verbal abuse and psychological abuse, manipulation, what we call today coercive control. Um, but my niece was, she was going to go solve the problem all by herself. And at the time, the college wasn't really offering, um, it, in her mind, um, help and that was going to get her out of this situation or to, to it, make it clear to him that she was no longer going to be with him no matter what. And so I think she went to his dorm room that night after he had been stalking her for a number of months after they formally broke up and to tell him one more time to leave her alone. And she didn't know he had a gun. She didn't even imagine that he had a gun. And when he killed her and killed himself, uh, not only my family, but the whole college community and the whole community um, in, this, in this fairly small um, uh, Western, England, Western Michigan town were really shocked. And people called it a lover's quarrel and they called it, <clears throat> you know, why didn't she leave? Well, she did. Why didn't the school do something? Well, they didn't. So there's lots of this kind of conversation. And I felt like I wanted to do something about that but I also knew that emotionally it was hard for me to go back doing the crisis intervention work. So, because uh, every woman in the shelter was Maggie and emotionally, I wasn't gonna be very much help. So I had to figure out something else to do to deal with my anger and also my need for revenge. I had to avenge this. My niece is a very special, very brilliant, bright, beautiful young woman. And this was not fair, <laughs> this was not right. Um, okay. So that's really where I took my course. Okay. So, yeah. So I was going to ask you what the emotional impact was, but you just, you just highlighted it there. And I, and I, having not experienced that myself, a, a loss of someone so close in, in such a violent fashion, I can't even imagine trying to wrap my head around that set of feelings or emotions and, and being able to plot your next course. But I do like the fact that, uh, that you saw a need for revenge, but you went about it a different way. Can you explain what that way was? Well, most, as, as I've learned, I've now, my, myself and my, me and my family have joined the club, uh, a club you don't want to belong to, but because you are, you need to get together, uh, of homicide survivors. Most homicide survivors I've met, uh, people whose loved one has been killed, and, uh, and it may be a car accident, and it might be, you know, a drunk driver, or, or violent crime, um, have go through the criminal justice system. And um, they have to deal with this person who has hurt and killed um, the loved one. And it's very excruciating. So I guess the gift we got was to not have that happen. Although I can't imagine um, his family. I don't know much about his family. We had no contact with his family, but to not only have uh, a son die, but also to have a son cause that kind of kind of crime against somebody else. But in any case, so um, I felt like um, I needed to avenge this in some way. I wasn't going to take him to court. I wasn't going to get him put away in jail for the rest of his life or whatever. So I, I, I started, you know, thinking about this revenge thing. So how do you get revenge when this situation isn't exactly the way it's prescribed in the criminal justice system. So I Googled the word revenge, of course, it's what people do. And I got this quote, living well is the best revenge. And I thought, yeah, that's exactly right. Like he destroyed my niece and he was going to destroy my family. I was like, no way he was going to do that. There's no way that this, his, his terror and his 
his this abject um, uh, irresponsibility was going to go farther than that. So I actually spent, I remember I told you I was not working at the time, that, at least not full time when Maggie was killed. So I went out for about a year uh, in and out of uh, Michigan uh, from here in Connecticut to help my brother and sister, uh, sister-in-law. I was helping at the college with the girls who knew her and some of the girls that didn't know her were really interested in these issues. We started doing women's power circles and beginning to work on these issues and what could we do and what changes could we make at the college. And I thought, you know, there's something about this that really makes rings true to me. That, that although I'd never imagined myself doing this kind of work, you know, sort of rallying people in some kind of a healing mode, um, something about it really grabbed me. And not only my own journey to heal myself, but as you, as you talk about in your show, you know, what, what good could come out of this? And that's my niece's message. You know, she would be, if she was the one that was alive and her girlfriend or somebody she loved was, she'd be out there fighting every minute about something and making the world better because of that. So, um, so I have done that. I have gone to talk on college campuses. I regularly hand out the warning signs and, and talk through, you know, if it's, if it's just verbal abuse and just psychological abuse, which is not really a just, but you know what I mean? People think, right. oh, you know, he's not, he's not hitting me so I can manage this. But you right. don't know when that moment's going to come. And my niece didn't know when that moment was going to come. Uh, and she didn't right. know he had a gun. So, so the idea that there's something bigger you can do here, and also it's going to heal you and hopefully heal other people. So then I started really realizing that I could take my personal experience of healing and moving on and bring it, bring it bigger and see how I could make it apply to more and more women. Good. You know, one of the things I, you just mentioned that I kind of want to expound on for just a quick moment, you said it was the expression of just, it's just, you know, it was just, he was just talking. It was just words. Uh, it was just verbal abuse. It was, you know, he never hit me, uh, things along those lines. I think that many times that that aspect of things gets played down as to what you were, right. uh, to your point, I think that gets played down. And so people feel that, you know, because there isn't currently physical abuse in the relationship that it's something that you know can kind of be overlooked and it's something that can be dealt with later right. how or, do you, or managed in the moment yeah yeah how do you help people see the the importance of removing themselves from that abuse because in helping them to appreciate that abuse is abuse is abuse I think there's two parts to it. One is that, and, and given I've done this work for almost 40, 50 years now, um, this wasn't the way we looked at it years ago. I think that we have gotten a better understanding of how this dynamic works so that it isn't just uh, uh, verbal abuse, that it's more about manipulation. And for many women, they thought, well, it's just something I'm doing. It's like something I'm doing. If I would have, you know, had the dinner on the table, he wouldn't have yelled at me. And So I think we're, we're making it more universal. We're using the words stronger, like coercive control, um, something that you don't have the ability to solve personally. And like I, my niece was a problem solver. I'm going to go solve this problem all by myself. So I think that's one. And I think the second thing that I always say to women, and I remember on a, uh, someplace when I was shuttling back and forth between my home in Connecticut and Michigan when after Maggie was killed, I was talking to some woman on the plane. She's like, well, why are you going to Michigan? And I was, you know, I started telling the story, which I don't usually go into, but I did. 
And she's like, oh, well, I have a friend who has that problem. And she's told me that, you know, she can, she can manage his little banter back and forth. And I'm like, you know what? You don't know when he's going to turn. You don't know when that person is going right. to move. And so it could be all verbal, 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 and psychological and whatever, but you don't know when that moment's going to be. And that's the moment when, particularly in many cases of domestic violence, um, <clears throat> homicides about with guns is when there's access to a gun. Um, now, this young man didn't have, he, he bought the gun and he bought it in a way that was very um, secretive. But there are people, and right now there are laws, including here in Connecticut, that if you get arrested for domestic violence, physical violence, or even pushing and shoving or whatever, you have to give up your gun. So, so we did make all those connections, uh, not only for ourselves as in the legal world and the criminal justice world and the law, but just for women personally. So I think there's movement. But I still meet women who think, you know, who say to me, I, I thought it was all me. I didn't realize that, that there was other things and they didn't have words for it. So that they, it's not just that he yells at me a lot, that he is manipulating me and he is, he is, is coercive control and he is, and he is verbally abusing me and insulting me. So to raise the level of those words. Um, and I think that's really helped. I, I've also done work with, um, after Maggie was killed, I've also done work with men who were arrested for domestic violence. So I've sat in groups for almost 15 years that was uh, educational groups uh, and listening to their stories. And, and in many cases, they have had trauma histories and their, their experiences as children was witnessing, witnessing this kind of behavior by their in their parents' life. So they also have a whole educational process and then how they manage their anger and how they how they communicate. So there's a lot of work that needs to be done on both sides, not only for women who, uh, for people, for women and mostly women who are survivors, but also for people who might be perpetrating and don't really have any other um, means of conducting themselves or um, really understanding how relationships should work. Okay, excellent. Now, one of the things that we we like to do on the show is we like to talk about how we move forward personally. Uh, through these things and how we navigate our own feelings and emotions in order to have a successful future. Now, you've you've mentioned that a little bit about how your work in with the uh, uh, the the re the revenge therapy, the uh, avenging angel <laughs> workshops. I love uh, that. Have, I love that revenge. I'm right. That revenge therapy. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> you know how about uh, your work through the my uh, avenging angel workshops? How that mm -hmm. has helped you uh, to move forward. But what are some other ways that you use personally to help you navigate through the feelings of loss, especially if it's around the time of a death of an anniversary, things mm -hmm. along those lines? Right. So the way I think about it and the way I teach it and the way I've taught it to, to myself is that there, this is a journey, that um, we're, we're all on a journey. Um, there's going to be some struggle in our life. Some will be more complicated and more uh, lifelong uh, trauma histories. But we're going, we, we go from victim to survivor to thriver. And um, there are days that I, right now I'm in thriving with you. This is great. I'm thriving. Um, but something can pull me back to victim pretty easily. Um, and it may be some minor little thing like my car isn't starting and I'm back there. Um, <clears throat> but it's not, it's not a linear version, journey. It's not like one day you're in survivor, the next day you're in thriver, you never go back. You go back and forth. So what I've learned is, for example, um, Maggie and I actually share the same birth date, 
which is kind of interesting. Um, and so August 23rd is always a day that I'm going to feel the not only energy of Maggie, but that she's not with us and why she's not with us. Um, Christmas is the time I used to, used to see her the most regularly. So those are all days. So I have learned that those are going to be days that are emotionally going to be difficult for me. So I will, I will move back to that victim place and why this happened and how come and whatever. So what I've learned is that I can decide how long I'm going to stay in that space and what can I do to move it forward. So uh, on the anniversary of Maggie's death, she was killed on October 17th. Every year I have an event. I, um, I usually have a book, a new book that comes out or something that celebrates the women in my community because I work with these women, not only in a workshop, but they continue on in a, an ongoing program. And we all get together and we just you know, have that energy. So it's trying to understand that. It's also trying to understand there's a negative voice in my head, I call it the inner critic, that's gonna get a, really beat me up in that process. And you know, you know, you didn't do enough. Why didn't you, you know, why didn't you help her? Uh, why is the world so crazy? I mean, just this whole. So it's really kind of mind over matter, I guess. But it's also realizing there's a part of me that's been untouched by all this, and if I can keep that, keep in contact with that part of me, um, and realizing that that is the universal, that is the thing that can't die. That's Maggie's spirit is still part of my life, even though she's physically not with us anymore. So I think it's trying to, it's a spiritual journey. And I say that not in a religious sense, but that it's a journey of spirit. So I can either have my spirit feeling like, okay, it's a, it's a good day. And yeah, I'm going to get drawn back into some stuff. Or it's a day that I have to really um, keep myself uh, on alert and bring the most positive things I can into my life. And in that process, I think, is what most women, because they've been beaten down, forgot that part and they've also had their inner critic is so loud that they can't um, release themselves that's what i really do in my workshops is try to get them to walk through a process where they can see they're on a journey that they have this negative voice in their head and there's also a happy person inside them and see if we can celebrate that part of them and use that part of them to go on and get some goals that they really want to achieve in their lifetime things that may have been they were held back from because they were in abuse or because they'd gone through the crisis of a sexual assault. Let's bring those dreams back out and see what it looks like and see what you, what we can accomplish. Even if it's just on a good, on a bad day, just feeling better, or at least feeling like um, the whole world is not totally collapsed. It's just one day and one moment of being sad and, and, and grieving. Uh, not only that I grieve my niece's loss, but I grieve the, the loss of the women and what they could have accomplished maybe in their lifetime up to date. But boy, when I get them going, and I don't say this in any kind of brag, bragging ways, they do things I, I didn't even imagine that they could do. So it's really cool. That's fantastic. So let's, let's shift from that. Now, you're also, we mentioned in the outset, you're also an author. And you've wrote, you've let's say this properly, Tim, let's use English. You've written, I almost yes. said written. Uh, <laughs> you have, I guess I just, I guess I did say it. I don't know um, if that's a word, but go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> you have written three books in what you call the Survivor Zone series or the Thriver Zone oh, series, yes. pardon me. So if you wouldn't mind, take us through those and, and what, how did, you know, the, the how and why for, for those books. 
Okay. So um, when I started doing the workshop, remember I'm an attorney, not a social worker or a clinician. So I really didn't know what I was doing, but I started doing some exercises that um, like the quieting the inner critic and bringing up the happy person inside goal setting. And so I realized that the women were relating to these and they were, I'm a writer. So I had them write things out. So I started collecting what they wrote, asked them to give me permission to use it. And so I decided to put it into these books um, which I call the Thriver Zone series. Um, the, it starts with entering the Thriver Zone, then staying in the Thriver Zone, and then living in the Thriver Zone. So they show the progression, most of which I've done in my workshop, of what the exercises are, some examples, and then how you move through the, the process. Living in the Thriver Zone, the third book, is um, seven women who've come through my workshop agreed to be interviewed and talked about how I helped them and what, what was helpful in the book that I did with them and talked about their exactly what you and I are doing right now is how did they move forward and what's some tips. So it's very inspiring. I was thrilled to, that seven women of many have worked with were willing to um, not expose themselves, but to articulate, I think, um, their own process. So that's really, it's, so they're, they're, they're workbooks in some ways, I guess, although I don't have any lines in them when you can fill in the blank, um, but I tried to make it so they're accessible, the exercises are accessible. And I've had a number of people who bought them, uh, not just survivors themselves, but women, people who work with survivors, therapists and counselors who really find it very, helpful to them, or at least some way that they can also inspire their clients to start moving forward. And then the other book series I have is a novel series, which is interesting because I've always wanted to write a novel. Um, it's one of my little writer's dreams when I was a little girl. And so, um, and I wanted to write something about what happened to Maggie, um, but I knew I couldn't write a memoir. It was just too emotional. So I actually wrote a novel loosely based on um, Maggie's story. I changed all the names and whatever. And sure. I um, made it be that the college and the community around her actually moved forward and did some really cool things. So in my, in my fictional life, I was able to show how her, her story, particularly because um, she missed some of the warning signs. And sometimes people get through story, they get a better idea of, of, of material than they do with a brochure saying, here's the warning signs and here's what to watch out for. So so those, so the novel series, which I'm now completing this year, the third book, is really my attempt to um, tell Maggie's story in a way that's educational and also, I think it was sort of, it was healing for me too. Okay. So it's not just the books that you've written either. You, you've also written several books on sex discrimination law and, and articles and, and things along those lines. How has that helped you bolster your work in, in with what you do? Well, um, you know, it was funny. The day that Maggie was killed in the week and the couple of weeks after the month, um, I, you know, I, I was in shock and I couldn't figure why this happened, why did this happen? And then it sort of dawned on me in some crazy way, <clears throat> everything I'd ever done came to Maggie's death. So that I had all this background on women's rights and and sexual assault and sexual harassment and domestic violence sort of brought me to the under so i had this under undergirding i guess is the word of knowledge so it wasn't like i had to go and educate myself on blah 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 what i hadn't had was the personal experience to translate it in some way and to not get stuck um like i said going back to crisis intervention was too hard for me 
which was probably the best decision I made, although it was gut-wrenching because I thought, well, I should be able to help women get out. Why can't I do that? But I couldn't. So I think um, that all that, uh, all that background was able to help me launch it quicker and also to see myself as um, I was on the precipice of this for a long time. Remember, I wasn't working full time when Maggie was killed. So I was still kind of figuring out what I was doing with my life. And I was waiting for this event that, of course, I didn't want to happen the way it did. But, you know, in life, you can't control the events sometimes. All you can control is what you do with it. So that's really what I, that's the energy I put into it. I can do something about this. Maggie would want me to do something about this. And this is what I can do. Uh, and it was, it, you know, it took me a while to figure out what the workshop was like. And it took me a while to get some credentials and get the women to feed me back that this was being helpful and that wasn't. And so it became a process of discovery. And that discovery was in the middle of a horrendous grieving process, but it did help me get through it. Okay, excellent. All right, so I have two questions I, I want to ask you, Susan. These mm -hmm. are questions that I ask every single guest who's ever been on the show, okay? So the first off is this. Looking back over the entirety of your experience, what's the single greatest lesson that you have learned? Well, that's pretty easy for me. Living well is the best revenge. I, 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 I go back to that. Um, I, I really think that however i thought in my little left brain mind as an attorney how i might you know get get through this um i that really that lesson that i learned early on and was like i said like a google you know um a google search was that yes and and the women i work with love that because they know because many of these abusers are very manipulative they're never going to get back at them they're never going to really get revenge but that those guys those perpetrators they do not want them to do to do well that just makes them crazy so they really that really they respond to that the same way that i did so yeah i couldn't change what happened to me i couldn't change what happened to maggie i couldn't change what happened to my family but but living well you know that's the one thing that i that i wanted to do so um I think that lesson, I sort of had that in my head, but, you know, I think the idea that in our society and the way as human beings, we sort of want to fight back or we want to push back or we want to do something bad to the people who've done something bad to us. Um, I think through history, we can show that's not necessarily um, the best way. So for me, it became very personal and very immediate. And I think I was supposed to find that quote in the middle of the Google search. I don't know. I can see that. I, and I do love that quote, living well is the best revenge. Yep. I think that's the best thing you can ever do to anyone who's ever wronged you is to just, you know, kill them with kindness, so to speak, and live yeah. well. You know? <laughs> it is one way to describe it. But I think it's also that it's a, it's a quality of life. You know, I'm going to have a quality of life that you're never going to have because you've got things you have to deal with and you're not willing to deal with them. Absolutely. And I can't, and I can't force that. I found that when I was working with men who were offenders, some of them were going to, yeah, I'm going to, I need to do something different. And some of them are like, you know, this is the way I've always been. And my father was this way and my grandfather. So, you know, too bad. Right. Okay. Here's the second question. Pretty right. similar, pretty similar in nature. 
Looking back over the entirety of your experience, what is the single greatest piece of advice that you have been given? Well, that's a good question. Uh, <laughs> single the best uh, piece of advice. Um, I think it was probably, and I don't know if it was a person that said this to me or, or a conglomeration of people or maybe just the energy. Um, so one of the things that I do when something happens in my life that's a bit challenging is, I, is I've learned, and maybe this is the advice somebody gave me, or I, it's an amalgam of advice. I always think like, is this as hard as getting through Maggie's death? And I'm like, no, that was really, really hard. This is, this is difficult, but um, I measured against that. One of the worst things that ever happened to me. There's other things that have happened to me that have not been nice, but so the idea that um, you can do this, uh, and I say this to women who come through my workshop, come to my workshop. I work with women who have left abuse and have come beyond the crisis. I don't try to duplicate crisis intervention programs, but for women who have come out of an abusive relationship or through a crisis of a sexual assault, if you can do that, you can do about anything. And I think that's really the best advice I got. Maybe it was from my own head, but um, I can see that now. Uh, I don't think I knew that before Maggie was killed. I, I, think I, I think it was possible in my head, but I don't think I lived by it. I live by that now, that I can do anything. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's, uh, I think that's great advice. Okay, so Susan, I have enjoyed talking with you so much, but before we let you go today, I would like for our listeners uh, who are interested in finding out more about you to know where to find you. Okay, so I have a website, <laughs> isn't that exciting? It's called, uh, obviously it's called thriverzone.com and on that website is uh, information about me, about Maggie. I also have a short six minute video of, that talks a bit about Maggie um, and, and also, interviews for women who've come through my workshops and who are still in my programs. So sometimes I can describe to people what I do, but the women actually can tell you and show you what I've done. Um, I've also, I do the My Avenging Angel workshops. They are free of charge. Um, that is one of my values. I know there are women out there who uh, cannot afford this kind of, I don't even call it therapy, this kind of motivational process. Uh, workshops. So I have I have a nonprofit organization that has has sponsored the women who subsidize it. So the workshops are free. They're now virtual. <laughs> Thank you. They're now virtual on Zoom. So I'm now now I live in Connecticut. I used to do them in person only, and now I'm attracting women from all over the country. And I had a woman from South Africa recently on my workshop. Um, so really trying. So that's also on the website. It's also at myavengeangel.com. So. So please just take a look and if nothing else, come in and feel some energy, some fiber energy from the website. That'd be great. Fantastic. Yeah. And there's links to social media down at the bottom. Uh, if you scroll down to the bottom of the homepage, you'll find links for her uh, uh, Twitter page, her Facebook page, YouTube, uh, looks like Instagram and Pinterest. There's all uh, social media sites there for you to be able to get a hold of Susan and the work that she's doing. And one more thing before we let her go, I, I want to read this. Uh, this is Susan's personal mission statement. It's listed on the website. You'll find it there on the homepage. And, I, and if you haven't caught on to this throughout the rest of our conversation, this is a very accurate description, in my opinion, of Susan. It says here, I am a woman of power whose mission in life is to be a catalyst for change for victims of violence against women. 
Today, I celebrate my life by building a community of strong, independent, productive women who have survived abuse and are thriving in well-being, love, and joy. I think that's awesome. I think, I think it's amazing that you do the work that you do. Uh, being the son of a survivor of, of physical abuse, I think it's amazing that you do this work. And I think it's awesome that you're working with people to make this something that's free of charge where anybody can have access to it. And I applaud the fact that you're now doing this on Zoom so you have a wider range of, of reach. So, Susan, thank you for all your work. Thank you for being a guest today on Focused on Forward. Thank you for the work you do and, and the recognition that people have had these problems for centuries and we need to really, really try to not only eradicate but help people heal. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, guys, go to thriverzone.com. Check out Susan O'Million, the work that she's doing. If you know somebody who needs her help, please share the website with them, share her social media with them. This is something that can help uh, somebody be, you know, even if you think it's something that, that can just be overlooked, abuse is abuse. Don't let it stand. Get them in touch with Susan. Help them to live their best life. That's going to conclude us today on Focused on Forward. Thanks for listening. Well, that concludes another episode of Focused on Forward. To be a guest of Focused on Forward, you can reach us through Twitter at podcastfof, through our Facebook page named Focused on Forward, or through email focusedonforward at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing each and every one of your stories that has yet to be told. So until then, be safe, be kind, and be loving to one another as you stay focused on forward.